love it when men with gray hair precede me and they have to take out their reading glasses just as I do. Good morning. In the name of our risen, living and dwelling Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's once again my humble privilege and great joy to be with you here at Bernie Bible Church and anticipating all that the Lord is going to do by and through the ministry of the Word of God as we are taught by the Spirit of God in order to know more fully, more personally, more intimately the Son of God, and that, of course, is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As in times past, my purpose in being here is simply to be a signpost. And the signpost points people to their destination, but once we arrive at the destination, the signpost is no longer necessary. In fact, the signpost is usually forgotten. And our destination is the person, the presence, and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, as we've mentioned in times past, that there is a difference between prominence and preeminence. Prominence conveys the idea of one among many. That thing, that person might be important, but they're one among other things or other people that are important. And so if I was to say to my wife, Linda, sweetie, you are prominent in my affections, it's actually going to raise more questions than it's going to answer because her first question is obviously going to be, well, Jerry, who else is prominent? Because, again, prominence conveys the idea of one among many. She doesn't want to be prominent. She wants to be preeminent, which she is, because preeminence means there is no one else. It means the one and the only one. But more than the husband's affections for the wife or the wife's affections for her husband, we are reminded in Colossians 1 and verse 18 is that Jesus Christ is to be preeminent in and over everything in our life. But what has happened among many Christians, especially in this country, is that we've given Christ a place, but does he have the place? We've included him in our life, we've made him part of our life, but is he our very life? Now, certainly not here at Bernie Bible, but there are some who uh, preach the gospel by saying, add Jesus to your life and you'll be a better person. And so we add Jesus to our life like we might add marriage to our life, or we add children to our life, or we add a new living location to our life, or we add a new ministry to our life, or we add a retirement to our life. And so Jesus becomes one more thing that we add to our life along the way of life rather than being the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is not someone that we add to our life, include in our life, make part of our life. He is to be our very life. Now, this is not a New Testament truth introduced following the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. For back in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 20, God through his servant Moses said, the Lord is your life. And so God designed us, first of all, to dwell in his presence, but also that he would be our very life, not someone that we add to our life, include in our life, or make part of our life. He is to be our very life. And so when Paul writes in Philippians 1 and verse 21, that for me to live is Christ. He is not living for Jesus, but rather living is Jesus. That of the road to Damascus, the center of his life changed, and it's no longer Saul of Tarsus, it's not even the Apostle Paul. It is Christ and Christ alone. Last month, as many of you know, uh, was Pastor Appreciation uh, Month, and uh, so I know we're six days into November, but I thought I would preach for two or three hours this morning so you would appreciate Charlie next week. <laughs> It's been my privilege these last two weeks to be teaching up at his hill the books of Daniel Revelation. Really, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. And last evening, my wife called and said, all was forgiven. I can come home now, and so I'll be leaving following the church service to fly back home to Colorado Springs. But once again, it's been my joy to be with you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll continue on in his word. Father in heaven, we do pause to acknowledge our need of thee, our total, complete, and conscious dependence upon thee. 
And Father, I pray that these truths that we have heard before, we even believe, we embrace, perhaps we even taught ourselves, that you would deliver us the mindset of how often familiarity can breed neglect. That we become so familiar with these truths of Scripture, these portions of Scripture, that we neglect them, wanting to go on to something that we think is more interesting or more exciting. And there should be no one more interesting or more exciting than the one who loves us and gave himself for us. And we thank you that your word is living and powerful. And we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit as not only the author, but the teacher, and also the one who is given to glorify Christ and so, to reveal him. And so I pray that the Spirit of God would take the word of God and bring it alive so that we might know more intimately the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your promise that your word will not return to you void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it is designed. And and as it is revealing the Lord Jesus Christ to us, we have the promise in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 that as we behold him, that is the Lord Jesus, that we are transformed into his image from glory to glory. No steps of action to take, no principles to practice, no disciplines to do. For whatever, whomever we are preoccupied with, that is what we become like. And may we be preoccupied with the one who loves us and gave himself for us. For the true occupation of every believer is preoccupation with the Savior. And we pray that these truths will become the reality of our life as we're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The Word of God says to both the child of God and about the child of God that is to be found in a steward to be faithful. A steward is one who has been entrusted with the most precious treasure of the household. And the most precious treasure of the family of God is the preeminent one, and that is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when one by faith in Christ is joined to the person of Christ, and thus we become part, if you will, of the family of God, we are to be faithful, faithful in knowing him, faithful in revealing him, but also faithful in pleasing him. Now, our faithfulness to Christ is in response to his faithfulness to us. Throughout all of Scripture, if there is one truth that God is continually revealing himself, is that he is faithful from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, the psalmist summarized it in this verse, Psalm 119 and verse 90, when he says that thy faithfulness, that is the Lord's faithfulness, is unto all generations. A more familiar verse is when God summarized his faithfulness is through the prophet Jeremiah. In Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23, when Jer- there Jeremiah writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And of course, the old hymn of the faith, Great is thy faithfulness, is based on this verse, Lamentations 3, verse 23. Now, as Jeremiah is penning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is when the city of Jerusalem is being besieged by the Babylonians. The temple is being destroyed. The city is being decimated. Israelites are being deported, plucked off the land of Judah, and taken to Babylon. And in all of this, Jeremiah writes, Great is thy faithfulness. Because Jeremiah understood that the faithfulness of God is not based on our circumstances or our experiences, but rather his character. God is faithful. The circumstances of our life may change, but the faithfulness of the one who is our life, the Lord Jesus Christ, will never change because he is faithful. 
The last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis is not the story of Joseph. It is an account of the faithfulness of God as seen in the life of Joseph. And so Israel, if you will, has something to look back to in times of distress, times of circumstance and experience that are simply not going their way. And they can see that God is faithful because his faithfulness is not dependent upon our circumstances. And so in John 14 and verse 1, when Christ has just told his disciples that he was returning to the Father, and it produced, if you will, a severe spiritual heart attack in the life of these disciples because they could not imagine how they could live life apart from the one who has been their life for the last three and a half years, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ says, let not your heart be troubled. What he's actually saying there is let not your heart go on being troubled. He said in John 16 and verse 6, he says that because I have told you these things that he's returning to the Father, sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow has taken control of your heart. So Christ wants to remove that which has already taken place. Let not your heart go on being troubled. And then he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. The Lord Jesus Christ is all that the Father is. He is one in essence, one in nature, one in character, one in attributes. And so he's saying to these Jewish disciples, you know that God the Father has been faithful ever since the call of Abraham and also is manifested in the life of Joseph there in those last 13 chapters of Genesis. And and Christ is saying to his disciples, I I am all that the Father is. And since he has been faithful, I will be faithful to you as well. We see this recorded in the um, pages of our uh, New Testament epistles. Paul begins 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9 with these three words. God is faithful. And it is his faithfulness that supports us, that sustains us, that carries us along in the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, a more familiar truth. When there is no temptation, actually the better word, there is no trial that has taken us. But God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. And the way of escape is not necessarily a change of circumstances, although sometimes it is. The way of escape is simply the personal presence of Christ. As we just heard in, in Daniel chapter 3, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the way of escape was in the fiery furnace because that's where the Lord Jesus Christ was. For Daniel, the way of escape was in the lion's den because that's where the Lord Jesus Christ was. And so the way of escape is simply the personal presence of Christ. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 91, that he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The secret place of the Most High are the fiery furnaces, the lion's den, the trials, the tribulations, the the rejections, the, the difficulties, the disappointments of this life. That's when we abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Jesus Christ is all that we need, but the problem is we don't realize he's all that we need until he's all that we have. Paul continues to write in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24, that faithfulness he who is called to who also do it. This is not about our ministry for him. This is about his relationship with us. Because in the previous verse, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, there God says that he is faithful in sanctifying us. He is also faithful in preserving us, uh, keeping us, or securing us. Beloved, our security in Christ is not based on our faithfulness to him. It is based on his faithfulness to us. He will not let us go. Years ago now, when we were in Dallas, Texas, when I was attending seminary there, our daughter Katie was about two, three years old, and it was Friday afternoon when we had to cross a very busy intersection, Northwest Highway, Highway 12. It was six lanes, three lanes going in each direction. We were going to cross at the intersection, but it was still a very somewhat 
if you will, dangerous crossing because people in Dallas, Texas do not stop at the red lights, especially on Friday afternoon. I know people in Bernie and San Antonio would never dream of doing such a thing, but in Dallas, they keep moving even though the light is red in their direction. And so it's actually trying to find some other way to cross to the other side rather than the intersection, and there was no other way. And so I said to Katie, I said, Katie, when the light turns in our direction, returns green, we're going to wait a couple of seconds. Let the traffic clear, and then it's very important, Katie, that you take Daddy's hand. The light turned green in our direction. We waited a couple of seconds. The car is cleared, and I asked Katie to take Daddy's hand, and she was obedient. She held my hand as we crossed those six lanes of highway. But that whole time she was holding on to me, I was actually holding on to her. I was not about to trust the, the maturity of a two-year-old crossing that busy intersection. For if Katie got distracted or saw something that, that, that she wanted to go to and let go of me, there would not have been enough time to, to catch up with her. And so as soon as, as soon as she took my hand, I positioned my hand around her hand in such a way that as soon as any pressure let up, I had her. Now, I'm not taken away at all from her obedience. She was obedient, holding my hand. But that whole time she was holding on to me, I was holding on to her. And we might think we're holding on to Jesus, but Jesus is holding on to us. Faithful is he who has called you who will also do it. He will keep us secure in him. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're reminded that we, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So again, his faithfulness to us is not based or dependent upon our faithfulness to him. In Ephesians chapter 6, the shield of faith is not even our faith in him, it's his faithfulness to us. Because that shield, which was called a door shield, two feet wide, three, inches, or three feet tall, was light enough that the Roman soldier can move from place to place, and it was just big enough that they could crouch behind it when the fiery darts of the enemy came. But when, they, when those fiery darts were coming at the Roman soldier and they were crouched behind that shield, they could not see the fiery darts and they could not see the enemy. They were preoccupied, if you will, with that shield, that there was no defects, there was no recalls, and it was functioning the way it was designed to be. The shield of faith is Christ's faithfulness to us. And then the writer to the Hebrews summarizes this truth when he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, because he is faithful that has called us. Beloved, it is the faithfulness of God that sustains us, that supports us, that secures us, that carries us along in the Christian life. It is described in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11 as the mother eagle spreading out her wings and carrying her young on her wings. And that's the picture that God has given us of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He undergirds his own. He is faithful. And so therefore, I can trust Christ. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. And again, even if the circumstances of our life may change, the faithfulness of the one who is our life will never change because Christ is faithful. And so in response to his faithfulness to us, again, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2 is to be found in a steward to be faithful. Again, a steward is one who's been entrusted with the most precious treasure of the household, and the most precious treasure of the family of God is the preeminent one. And we are to be faithful in knowing him, we are to be faithful in revealing him, and we're also to be faithful in pleasing him. We are to be faithful in knowing him, and that means that we are learning of him. Christ is a person, and in Matthew chapter 11, 
Verses 28 and 29, he invites us to learn of himself. Some translations has where Christ says, learn from me, and that's certainly true, but actually he's saying there, learn of me. And again, he is a person, and we are to be learning of him. We're not to be learning of principles on how to live the Christian life, but the principle one. We're not to be learning of blessings, but the blessor, because the blessings we receive from Christ is because we have been joined to Christ. We're not to be learning of rewards, but but the rewarder. We're not to be learning of promises, but the person, because the promises of Christ are only as good as the character of the person. We're not to be learning of uh, methods, but we're to be learning of the master. Throughout the book of Judges, God never repeats the same battle plan for Israel to have the victory over their enemy, because he never wanted them to look to the method, but instead to look to the master. Christ does not invite us to learn of revival, but to learn of the reviver. We think what the church needs is revival, but it isn't. We need the reviver, and that is Christ himself. Christ does not invite us to learn of systems, theological systems, doctrines, but rather to learn of the Savior. Christ does not invite us to learn of experiences, but to learn of the exalted one. So much of our Christian life, so much of our understanding of our relationship with Christ is based on experience. It's based on circumstances. You know, um, Peter had that mountaintop experience of not only seeing the Lord in all of his glory when, he, when he, the veil of the human body of Christ was parted and he saw Christ's glory, but he also heard the word of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Peter goes on in 2 Peter chapter 1 and says that we have a more sure, a more certain prophecy. The better word there is revelation. And he's speaking there of the scriptures. We have a more sure, a more certain revelation of who Christ is, and that is the Bible. Beloved, the word of God God supersedes any experience that we have had with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ does not invite us to learn of experiences with him, but to learn of the exalted one, Christ himself. He doesn't invite us to learn of gifts, such as spiritual gifts, but to learn of the giver of the gift, and that is Christ. The purpose of any spiritual gift is to glorify the giver, not to draw the attention to the user. Christ does not invite us to learn of comfort, not the city that some of us live in, but to learn of the comforter, and that is Christ. Christ does not invite us to learn of healing, but to learn of the healer. He doesn't invite us to learn of forgiveness, but the forgiver. He doesn't invite us to learn of counseling, but to learn of the wonderful counselor who is Christ himself. He doesn't invite us to learn of satisfaction, of how we can satisfy ourselves, but to learn of the satisfier. He doesn't invite us to learn of peace, but to learn of the prince of peace, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The world today cries for world peace, all these different contests, and they said, you know, what is your goal in life? And they always say world peace. Beloved, there can never be peace apart from a relationship with the prince of peace. If 100 pianos are in tune with the same tuning fork, they will be in tune with each other. If 100 individuals are at peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be at peace with one another. Christ does not invite us to learn of the armor of God, but to learn the person of God, because the armor is simply describing who Christ is. As we just mentioned, he is the shield of faith. He is the belt of truth, because he's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the breastplate of righteousness, because he's been made unto us righteousness. As we just indicated, he is the shoes of peace, because he himself is our peace, as Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 14. Christ does not invite us to learn of a place called heaven, but to learn of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, what makes heaven heaven is not the streets of gold. It's not the glory and splendor of that habitation. What makes heaven heaven is the personal presence of Christ. And if Christ wasn't in heaven, heaven wouldn't be heaven. 
Christ does not invite us to learn of the plan of salvation, but the person of salvation. He doesn't invite us to learn of saving souls, but the Savior of souls. And he doesn't invite us to learn of how to live the Christian life, but to learn of Christ himself. Because 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, living the Christian life is by his doing. Knowing Christ means that we are learning of him. Knowing Christ also means that we are feeding on him. And the way we feed on the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, is by the written word. For Christ said in John 5 and verse 39, these words, referring to the scriptures, testify of me, testify of Christ. Beloved, God has given us the word of God, not to solve our problems, not to answer our questions, and not to meet our needs. That's all secondary. He has given us the word of God to know the person of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, which actually is our greatest need. And so we're coming to the scripture to know a person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is more than just reading God's word. It's more than just studying God's word. It's being saturated by the word of God. It's the word of God that's being assimilated in life, being immersed in the word of God. My wife likes to use the word, the word of God percolating. She drinks coffee and she likes the word percolating. <laughs> However you want to describe it, it is to become our very life just as the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our life. And we see this in the life of Job because Job says, he says that God's word, he treasured God's word more than, than his necessary food. Spending time with God and his word was more important than his necessary food. Jeremiah, to create this, if you will, vivid picture, he said, I saw the word and I ate it. In other words, that it's digested, it's assimilated, it becomes a living part of us. And so knowing Christ means that we're learning of him. It means that we're feeding on him as we not just read and study the word of God, but as, it, as we're saturated by it, as we're uh, immersed with it. I, I, I've been here a number of years, and so I'm saying this not in any way to draw attention to myself, but I do not have a photographic memory. This became very evident early on in my childhood and especially in my seminary years. It is by saturation, not by memorization, and I'm continually praying as I'm speaking that God would bring these scriptures back to mind. But we want the word of God should be a living part of us because the word of God is living, revealing to us the living word, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing him means that we're learning of him. It means that we're feeding on him, but it also means that we're following after him. Jesus said several times in the Gospels, if anyone will follow me, let him take up his cross daily. So what does it mean to take up one's cross? We often think that taking up our cross are the trials, the difficulties, the hardships, the burdens of this life. You might think that having to listen to me this morning is the cross that you have to bear. What did the cross represent to Christ? Philippians chapter 2, there we read he was obedient even unto death, and the death that he died was the death of the cross. Beloved, what the cross represented to Christ was not his death. It was his obedience that entailed death. And so when Christ says, if anyone will follow me, let him take up his cross, taking up one's cross is simply obedience. Uh, our faith in him, our love for him, is designed to produce obedience to him. Christ is not asking us to die for him. He's not asking us to live for him. Again, he's simply asking us that because of our faith in him and our love for him, that we would walk in obedience to him. But we also leave the results with him. For many Christians, their obedience to Christ is based on desired results, and it shouldn't be. It should be because of our fellowship that we desire to have with him. That knowing him means that we're learning of him, feeding on him, following after him, but it also means that we are fellowshipping with him.
In Revelation 3, verse 20, it's a verse that we often use to invite the unbeliever to faith in Christ when it's really being written to the believer to come back to fellowship with Christ. Christ says to these believers at the Church of Laodicea, he said, you say that you are rich, self-sufficient, you've increased in goods, that is, their good works have led to great wealth, and you're in need of nothing. And the nothing is not a what. The nothing is a who. They think they can live the Christian life without Jesus. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for getting us on the right path, going in the right direction. But we can take it from here. Or we'll take it as far as we can, and we'll just call you to finish the job. Or the expression (laughs) that is not found in Scripture, that God helps those who help themselves. None of that is true. None of that is accurate. Beloved, Christ gave his life for us to give his life to us so that he he could live his life in us and through us. Living the Christian life is not difficult. It is impossible. Only Christ can live the Christian life. And so he is inviting these independent, self-sufficient, self-willed believers back to fellowship with himself. When he says in Revelation 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door. We don't know how many people were there at the um, Laodicea Bible Church. It could have been a 100. It could have been a 1,000. But Christ says, If anyone is willing to, uh, that hears my voice and willing to open the door, I will sup with him and he will sup with me. Christ is inviting each and every believer to a table for two, where it is just the Lord Jesus Christ and you. When I want to take my wife out for a nice romantic meal and I go into the restaurant, they ask how many. I don't ask for a table for four or eight or 15 or 25. I want a table for two. It's a picture of intimacy. And in today's restaurants, I'm looking for a table where there'd be a wall behind my wife's back so I wouldn't be distracted by other things, other people or those TV screens and so on, so that I would give my full attention to the one who is preeminent in my life. But that's the picture of intimacy, that Christ is inviting each and every one of us to T-O, a table for two, T-W-O, where it is just the Lord Jesus Christ and you. Knowing Christ means we're learning of him, feeding on him, following after him, fellowshipping with him, but also we are abiding and resting in him. When we read this word rest in scripture, we tend to think that it's the absence of work, but that's really not how God's using it. He's using it as a change of activity. Tonight, when you sleep, your body's going to rest. If it stops working when you're sleeping, you're going to die. You're not going to wake up. It goes through a change of activity. It's changing its activity from digesting that it's been doing throughout the whole day because there's other activity we engage in called eating. And it changes its activity from digesting to cleansing. It's removing the toxins, the impurities out of our body. Heaven is a place of rest where we're not going to be sitting around for all eternity with our feet just dangling over the edge of clouds and just sipping on lemonade and eating bonbons. I hate to disappoint you, but that's not what heaven's going to be like. Some of you might not want to go there now that you know that. It's a change of activity. We're going to be worshiping the Lord day and night. God created in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. God did not stop working on the seventh day. He changed his activity on the seventh day from creating to sustaining. Colossians 1, verse 17. All things sustained and here they consist by Christ. He is the one that's holding all things together. And then in Genesis chapter 3, God changes activity again, and this time to redeeming fallen man. And so rest, the way it is used in Scripture, is not the absence of work. It is a change of activity, but it's also a change of attitude. Instead of striving to live the Christian life in my own effort, I am abiding. Instead of trying, I am trusting. I am trusting Christ to live his life in me and through me as I abide in him. 
If you were to look up this word abide in a Greek dictionary, a Greek lexicon, it would give a definition of to remain with or to dwell in, and that's, and that's fine. I'm not in any way trying to change it, discredit it. I just want to expand it. I want to enlarge it. A fish abides in the sea. The fish is drawing from the sea all that it needs to sustain it, to support it, and to nourish it. You take a fish out of the sea, and the fish will die. A plant abides in the ground. The roots of the plant is drawing from the soil of the ground all that it needs to sustain it, to support it, and to nourish it. You take a plant out of the ground, and the plant will die. You could take a two-by-four piece of wood and with a sledgehammer drive it into the same ground next to the same plant. The plant is abiding because it's drawing from the soil when it needs to sustain it, to support it, to nourish it, but the two-by-four is not abiding because it's not drawing from the soil when it needs to sustain it, to support it, to nourish it. The point is this, beloved. We can be a believer in Christ, but not abiding in him. Again, to think that we can live the Christian life in our own strength, our own effort, our own ability, our own wisdom. Paul said in Colossians 2, verse 6, As you receive Christ, so walk ye in him. The way we received him is the way we live the Christian life. There was nothing that we contributed to or added to the perfect, complete work of Christ for our salvation. And there's nothing that we can add to to the work of Christ as he lives his life in me and through me. If there's a formula, an equation for living the Christian life, it is simply Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. But this truth only becomes a reality as we are abiding and resting in him. So knowing Christ means that we're learning of him, we're feeding on him, we're fellowshipping, I'm sorry, we're following after him, we're fellowshipping with him, and we are abiding and resting in him. It's to be found in a steward to be faithful. A steward is one who knows Christ. A steward is also one who is revealing Christ. And this is what we see in Acts 1.8 when Christ said to his disciples, you are to be witnesses, not to do witnesses. You are to be witnesses. My life is to be a witness or revealing who Christ is. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, I am what I am by the grace of God. There is no explanation for the life of Paul other than the life of Christ. Paul says in the previous verse, I know what I was, but I am what I am today only by Christ. You take the life of Christ out of the apostle Paul, and he is a different person. The same is true. You take the Lord out of the life of Abraham, he's a different person. You take the Lord out of the life of Moses, he's a different person. You take the Lord out of the life of David, he's a different person. And the list goes on and on and on. These individuals are who they are because of who they have been joined to, and that is the Lord. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, the scripture says that Christ called the disciples to be with him, that is, knowing him, and then he sent them out to proclaim him, that is, revealing him. And often we reverse the order. We get the cart before the horse. We think that, we're, that we were saved to serve. That's the overflow. That's the byproduct, if you will. That's the fruit of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that Christ might be magnified, whether through death or through life. It really doesn't make any difference. After Christ raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, the next chapter, John 12, verse 2, is that Lazarus is there eating a meal in public with his sister, two sisters, actually, Martha and Mary, and with Jesus. And the scripture says later on is the Pharisees wanted to put Lazarus to dead because if there is anyone who is revealing Christ, it is Lazarus because everybody knew that Lazarus was dead. Everybody knew he'd been in the grave for four days, and the only reason he is alive is because Jesus raised him from the dead. And so in order to discredit 
Let me back up. In order to justify their own rejection of Christ, the Pharisees are trying to put Lazarus to death because Lazarus is living proof of who Jesus Christ is. Beloved, there should be no explanation for my life other than the one who is my life, and that is the Lord Jesus. It's not that I've gotten smarter, wiser. It's not that I've learned from life's experiences. It's not that I've gotten mature in my older age. That, that, that should not be the explanation of who I am and what I am. It should be Christ and Christ alone. Beloved, Christ has called us not just to be witnessing for him, we are to be witnesses of him, that there is no explanation of who I am and what I am other than the living and indwelling Christ. When Christ said in Matthew 28 and verse 18, go into all the world, that word go be better understood as as you are going about your normal course of activity, your normal course of, of, of responsibility, as you're going about to, to Walmart, to AGB, to Starbucks, whatever it may be, we are to be witnesses of who he is. So it's not a, one t- it's not a specific act that you are to go into all the world, it's as you're going about in the world. God said to Israel back in Isaiah 42 and verse 6, he said, you are to be a light to the Gentiles. And what God did is he placed Israel in the, in the center of the known world. They, they were the crossroads. They were the trade routes. They were also where the armies crossed when they would battle with one another. But all the Israelite had to do was come out of his house, and all the people of the world were coming through Israel, coming through Jerusalem. They didn't have to form mission boards. They didn't have to go anywhere. It's as they were going about their normal course of activity, they were to be a light to the Gentile. And they failed miserably. And so that's why Jesus said in John 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. And then he says in John 17 and verse 18, for that purpose that he has come into the world, not to redeem man, but to reveal uh, who God is that we have been sent into the world. Again, we are to be witnesses. He doesn't say doing. He says be. God did not create us as human doings. He created us as human beings. A steward is to be faithful. Faithful in knowing Christ, faithful in revealing Christ, but also faithful in pleasing Christ. Now, you just studied this in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 35, where there God says that the faithful priest does according to the mind and the heart of God. The faithful priest is pleasing to God. And, of course, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, summarized his entire life and ministry with these words in John 8 and verse 29, when he said, I always, without exception, do that which is pleasing to the Father. That, if you will, is what controlled and motivated Christ on this earth. He is our high priest today, and he did all that was pleasing to the Father. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Unfortunately, the King James used the word labor, and so we think it's an act, but it's actually an attitude. Paul says, I've made it my goal, I've made it my purpose, I've I've made it my ambition in life to be well-pleasing to a person. Not what I can receive from him, not to be rewarded by him, not the blessings that I'm going to have bestowed upon me as a result of it, but simply because of his faith in him and his love for him. I'm sorry, Paul wants to be well-pleasing to him, that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, there's only two choices on life's shelf. We're either pleasing Christ or we're pleasing self. I know Joshua said, choose you this day whom you shall serve, but if you allow me to paraphrase it, choose you this day whom you shall please. What controlled and motivated 
Paul, the Christian, is the same thing that motivated Christ, and that is to be well-pleasing to the Father. The word Christian ends with the suffix I-A-M, and that suffix literally means to be characterized, to be characterized by that thing, to be characterized by that person. A politician is characterized by politics. A Christian is to be characterized by Christ. And just as he is our high priest, was well-pleasing to the Father, so too we who are a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood before him, 1 Peter chapter 2, we are to be well-pleasing to God. And that's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. His goal, his purpose, his motivation was to be well-pleasing to a person. And so because of that, Paul is not one that we need to exhort to be faithful to the responsibilities and uh, privileges entrusted to him. We don't need to urge Paul to pursue the ministry given to him. We don't need to admonish Paul to sacrifice for the Lord. We don't need to remind Paul the danger of defection. And we don't have to warn Paul about the possibility of moral temptation. And that is because the center of his life has changed. He said, for me to live is Christ. But he also said that his motivation is to be well pleasing to Christ. And so Paul was not practicing principles. He was pleasing a person. He was not following a list of things to do. Instead, he was pleasing the lover of his soul. Paul was not obeying a set of rules, but he was pleasing the one who was the ruler of his life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was certainly not trying to improve his life, but rather pleasing the one who is his life. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And beloved, crucifixion is that one form of death that we cannot do to ourselves. It is physically impossible to get that last nail in. Christ did not crucify himself. He was crucified by the Romans. And in the same way, if you will, it is a work of God bringing us to the end of ourselves. And we were just reminded earlier this morning when Christ said, not my will, but thine be done. And in that, he lived a life that was well-pleasing to the Father. Paul concluded his life in 2 Timothy. Let's just go over there for a moment. It's a very familiar verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. When he says, I have fought the good fight, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. As many of you know, this is Paul's last epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit before he went into the presence of the Lord. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. Paul is not saying here how he fought, that is that he fought well. He's talking about the value of the fight. He's talking about the value of the Christian life. He is saying that being identified with Christ, living a life pleasing to him is of great value. And Paul was one who was shipwrecked. Paul was one who was beaten. Paul was one who was stoned. Paul was one who was put in prison. And he says living the Christian life, that is being identified with the person of Christ, is of great value, regardless what had happened to him in the physical uh, experiences and circumstances of life. It's of great value to be joined to the one who is our life, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 7 that I finished the race. That is, he stayed on course. He's not been distracted. He's not been diverted from the simplicity and purity devotion to Christ. This was Paul's prayer for the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, that they would not be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus Christ, their bridegroom. Without going any further than this, this is one of Satan's most effective tools, if you will, is to distract us, is to divert us from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus Christ. But then and finally in verse 7, Paul says, I have kept the faith. 
That is, I have remained faithful. I have remained faithful in knowing Christ. I have been faithful in revealing Christ. And I have been faithful in pleasing Christ. Why? Back to chapter 1 and verse 12. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. Chapter 1 and verse 12 of 2 Timothy, Paul says in the middle of that verse, he says, I know whom I have believed. Paul is not saying, I know what I have believed. He is saying, I know whom I have believed. He's not saying, I know what I believe. That is theology. That is doctrine. That is the Christian worldview or principles on how to live the Christian life or standards that I abide by or convictions or commitments. He's not saying what. He's saying, I know whom I have believed. And that is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we began here this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ is not a way of life. He is our life. He is not a force. He is not an it. He is a person. And so, therefore, the gospel is a person. For in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was raised again from the dead. And so, therefore, resurrection is a person. Christ said, I am the resurrection and the truth. Salvation is a person, for there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than Christ. Sanctification is a person. For in Philippians 1, verse 6, he has begun the good work. That is, Christ is the same who is going to complete that good work. Truth is a person. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Hope is a person. Christ in you who is the hope of glory. Grace is a person. Wisdom is a person. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Christ has been made unto us wisdom. He's also been made unto us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All, again, underscoring this truth that Jesus Christ is a person, and therefore wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption is a person. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, we've talked about this at other times, is a person. Christ doesn't give me love, he is love. He doesn't give me joy, he is joy. He doesn't give me peace, he is peace. We saw last year that that meekness or self-control is self being controlled by another. That is Christ, who is the one who is controlling my life. The Bible is about a person. As we've already mentioned in John 5 and verse 39, Christ said these words referring to the scriptures testify of him, testify of me, Christ said. And beloved, living the Christian life is a person because Christ said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 is that the Christian life is lived by his doing. The Christian life is a person. And so Paul at the end of his life in his last epistle says in chapter 1 verse 12, I know whom, not what, I know whom I have believed. The Lord Jesus Christ is a person, and he's designed to be our very life. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder of these precious truths. And even though we've heard them again, have heard them before, and we're just hearing them again, and we believe and we embrace them, just as the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter said that they were not ashamed of repeating the same truth over and over again because we are prone to stray. We are prone to wander. Sometimes it's not willful. Sometimes it's wayward that we are distracted from the simplicity and purity of devotion of our Savior, to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for times like this to be brought back to the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might truly have the preeminence, not prominence, but the preeminence in our life, and that our life would be centered in and on around a person, not doctrine, not theology, not principles, but the principal one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, as Paul concluded his life, I know whom I have believed. And we pray that these truths would be the reality of our own life 
as we're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our life. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.